Get Sleepy is a production of Slumber Studios and is made possible thanks to the generous support of our sponsors and premium members. If you'd like to listen ad-free and access weekly bonus episodes, extra long stories, and our entire back catalogue, you can try out Premium free for seven days by following the link in the episode notes. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Welcome to Get Sleepy, where we listen, we relax, and we get sleepy. I'm your host, Thomas. Thank you for joining us tonight. Simon will be reading to us this evening with a very special bedtime story, a sleepy and faithful retelling of William Shakespeare's classic tale, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And dreamlike it truly is, a tale of fairies and mischief, magic, and of course, love. Thank you to our very own Joe Steer for your special adaptation of this world-famous story. In order to keep bringing you new episodes of Get Sleepy each and every week, we rely on the amazing support of our premium subscribers. So, if you're enjoying the show and you feel you're getting a lot of value from it, and if you're in a position to do so, of course, it would mean the world to have your support too. In return, Get Sleepy Premium gives you access to our entire catalogue of well over 500 full-length episodes, and they're all entirely ad-free, so you can listen without interruption. And that's not all. As a premium supporter, you'll receive a brand new bonus episode every single Thursday. I'll be reading tomorrow's premium story, which takes us to Monte Alban, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Mexico. We'll explore this extraordinary place on a scenic hike there. I'd love for you to join me. So, if you'd like to give Premium a try, remember that you have a seven-day free trial to begin with. For more information, visit getsleepy.com support or just follow the link in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Before we begin tonight's story, let's take a few moments to unwind. Make yourself comfortable, and then close your eyes, allowing your breath to deepen, drawing in a steady flow of air and slowly releasing it back out. As you continue to breathe in a gentle, rhythmic pattern, bring your attention to the area around your heart. You might even like to place a hand over this area. 
we're going to send some loving kindness towards ourselves using the words, may I be happy, may I be safe, may I be healthy, may I be at peace. You might like to repeat these phrases either in your head or out loud, or simply listen and absorb these hopeful intentions, bringing them towards you by way of your heart. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May I be at peace. If you chose to place a hand over your heart, you can remove it now, allowing your arms to rest easily by your sides, feeling the weight of your body sinking further into the comfort of your bed. All that's left to do now is listen to Simon's voice as we enter the magical world of a Midsummer Night's Dream. The story's author, William Shakespeare, is a man who needs little introduction. A playwright, poet, and actor, his reputation has long outlasted his own lifetime, spanning the late 16th and early 17th centuries. Many consider him to be one of the greatest writers of all time, with his plays still being performed in theatres around the world and countless adaptations of his works still being made for television and film. Of the 38 plays authored by Shakespeare, more than half are set abroad, in places that he clearly had a fondness for and was fascinated by, though perhaps never visited in person. A Midsummer Night's Dream is one such story, which he wrote in Elizabethan England around the 1590s. Set in Athens, within the royal palace and its vast adjoining woodland, it's 16th century Athens the way Shakespeare imagined it. A blend of classical Greek literary elements, myths and glory, mixed with the charm and romance of its altogether English author. The result is a setting that is thoroughly romantic, 
perfect for a play about love. So let us bring to mind our own Shakespearean vision, beginning first with a sprawling, colourfully painted palace. With its smooth marble floors, soaring columns and countless roofs and archways, it has all the hallmarks of classical Greek architecture. Indeed, it wouldn't look out of place within the walls of the Acropolis, the ancient sky-high citadel containing Athens' most illustrious buildings. That's not to say that it would be better placed there amongst the famed statues, temples and palaces of the past. Few could imagine a happier setting than where the palace currently stands, behind the stunning gardens, against a backdrop of emerald forest. It's a breathtaking sight. And even more so right now, with the final preparations underway for a royal wedding. Here, upon these very grounds, Duke Theseus of Athens will marry the Amazon queen, Hippolyta. It's the social event of the year and will be watched closely by the elite of Athenian society. Naturally, then, every effort is being made to further beautify the area, with servants busy at work in every direction. One such group is a trio of maids. They're dressed in floor-length blue velvet, with pristine white aprons tied around their waists and matching white bonnets resting upon their heads. They work their way around the allotments at the far east side of the estate, selecting the best-looking fruits and vegetables to be included in the wedding meal. The chosen items are placed into a large wicker basket, of which the maids each have one. And truly, they're spoilt for choice, because everything they encounter smells so fresh and fragrant, and the colours are incredibly vibrant in the morning sunshine. It's for this reason, perhaps, that their spirits seem so high, as they laugh and chatter whilst filling their baskets full of colourful produce. Though perhaps it's the excitement of a royal wedding and all the ceremony and festivities to accompany it. After a short while, each of the maids has filled their baskets with the items required, and so they make their way across the stone path towards the centre of the grounds, where their route takes them up a set of rising steps. To the west of the grounds, the women see other servants like them. Some clean the paving stones and sweep the pathways where the guests might later walk. This is especially true around the pond area, where people often seem to flock, sitting down upon the benches as they gaze at the fish-filled waters. Elsewhere, amongst the flower beds, gardeners tend to the great many blooms that cover the grounds. Every flower 
is pruned to perfection. From the delicate iris and crocus in shades of purple, to the stunning gladiolus in all colors of the rainbow. The rose garden is particularly busy, with maids dotted all around, filling their wicker baskets with flowers for the wedding. Much like our trio of happy vegetable pickers, all of the staff appear in excellent spirits. There's a sense of excitement and pride in the air that's almost tangible. It's in the postures of the servants as they work, their easy expressions and relaxed smiles, the way they greet each other so cheerfully in passing. It's the men who whistle and hum as they sweep the staircase, and those three maids who almost bounce up the steps with baskets swinging at their sides. Eventually, the women reach the top of the steps, where the ground opens out to reveal a huge circular fountain flanked at the sides by emerald hedges. At its centre is a statue, raised above three tiers of crown-like bowls. It's the goddess Athena, protector and namesake of Athens, sculpted from the same gorgeous marble as the sleek columns of the palace behind her. Only right now, she's not alone, because in and around the fountain, workmen are busy. Two hold cloths, cleaning the marble exterior until it glistens in the sunlight. Another man, with trousers pulled up above his knees, wades through the water towards the central column. There, he reaches a gloved arm down into the water, plunging a long cleaning pipe in and out of it. Moments later, as if by magic, the fountain comes to life over his head, water bursting out below the feet of the goddess. It cascades down, filling one tiered bowl after another until it spills down from each. Soon enough, the man's work is done and there is a constant stream of moving water flowing from top to bottom. It's a beautiful sight, and one that causes the maids to gasp in wonder as they pass by, before heading up towards the house. Beyond the fountain, the palace lawn is bustling with servants, putting everything in place for the wedding feast later. Like the maids, the male servants are dressed in uniforms befitting a royal household. They wear tailored tunics of blue velvet, embroidered in gold, with matching doublets below and white hose. As each table is positioned, teams of men and women swoop in and begin decorating its surface. Cream tablecloths are laid out over the top before the place for each guest is set upon it. There are ceramic and silver plates and bowls surrounded by opulent silver cutlery, champagne saucers too, beside wine glasses, each made of the finest glistening crystal. 
It's hard to imagine a more inviting dinner table, especially with the addition of roses as the table's centerpiece. In shades of scarlet red and softest cream, their sweet and luscious scent permeates the air. Equally pleasant is the sound of music echoing out from the palace terrace, where a string quartet perform their final rehearsals. Each musician is seated, two with violins in their outstretched arms and another with a viola, like the violin, but slightly larger. The fourth performer sits behind a large stringed instrument, an exquisite piece crafted out of a deep, dark mahogany. Though only a practice, few watching would fail to be moved by their performance. Their movements seem effortless, as if the bows were pulling themselves across the strings and their arms were simply attached. The resulting sounds are magnificent. Heard alone, each rich note is as beautiful as it is compelling. But combined in harmony, the quartet produce the kind of music that is felt viscerally by those listening. This doesn't go unnoticed by the maids, who pause their conversation and take in these wonderful sounds. This remains the case throughout the rest of their journey as they stroll across the terrace, entering the palace through a large arched doorway. Inside the building, they step into the palace foyer, where sky-high ceilings soar above marble floors. And turning left, they head directly towards the palace kitchen, a massive room filled with colors, textures, and the tantalizing aromas of cooking food. Staff are scattered about the kitchen, rolling pastry on flowery surfaces and mixing ingredients in large ceramic bowls. A boy sits beside a fire, occasionally turning a piece of meat on a spit as it cooks above the crackling flames. In other areas of the kitchen, a range of fresh vegetables are being prepared. And it's one such area that our trio visits next, handing over their baskets with merry smiles. These are happily received by the cook and her staff, who empty out their contents amongst mounds of other delicious-looking produce. Once washed and chopped, seasoned and cooked, the vegetables will be included in a diverse range of truly flavoursome dishes. Aside from the kitchen, the rest of the palace is relatively calm. The bride-to-be, Queen Hippolyta, is hidden away in her private chambers upstairs, being pampered and prepared before the wedding ceremony. The Duke wanders throughout the grounds, overseeing the setup for this most important day. At present, he is stood upon the terrace, smiling broadly in his formal wedding suit, as he takes in the sounds of the string quartet. He appears utterly enthralled by what he hears. 
It's because the Duke is so preoccupied, perhaps, that he fails to notice events occurring nearby. For, on any other day, the usually astute Theseus might have spotted the well-dressed couple heading off into the forest. And recognizing them as the Lady Hermia and the gentleman Lysander, he would likely guess that they were running away to be together. After all, the girl's father openly forbade the lovers to marry, having already arranged a suit between his daughter and another gentleman. According to ancient Athenian law, a daughter must obey the will of her father. And so, despite loving another, Hermia is expected to marry Demetrius. In fact, that very man is marching into the Emerald Forest now, following in the footsteps of the eloping couple. Demetrius, having heard of Hermia's escape, is bent on finding his future wife and bringing her home to marry him. A short way behind him walks Hermia's best friend, the Lady Helena, who loves Demetrius, just as he loves Hermia. Sadly, for each, the feelings are unreciprocated, a heavy burden they carry within them as they search for their loved ones. However, anything can happen within the realms of the woodland, particularly here in the royal woodland, where magic and mystery lie around every corner. For unbeknownst to the humans who wander its depths now, this beautiful forest is home to a great number of magical creatures. Sprites and spirits, elves and fairies, thousands of fairies, in fact, gliding about the forest, glowing like fireflies. What's more, the woods are home to the greatest and most magical fairies of all. Oberon and Titania, king and queen of the fairies. In appearance, they are somewhat similar to a human king and queen, being immaculately dressed and bejeweled, with golden crowns upon their heads. But there's an otherworldliness about the pair that sets them apart from mortals. Both are incredibly handsome, with the kind of looks that intrigue and mystify all who see them. Their skin seems to shimmer like stardust, as if they exude magic and wonder from their every pore. Titania is especially beguiling, with her blonde curls flowing loose around her crown and her bright green eyes sparkling like emeralds. Her wrists ears and neck drip with diamonds, and she wears a stunning gown of velvety rose petals, the same creamy shade as those adorning the tables of wedding guests nearby. Their sweet scent only adds to the queen's ethereal allure. At present, Titania is seated high up amongst the lush forest canopy, Resting upon a mattress of leaves, feathers, and flower petals, she looks every bit the fairy queen. 
Her servants flutter around her. Peas blossom, moth, cobweb, and mustard seed, always by her side and ready to attend to her every need. They dance around her, gliding through the air and singing the most beautiful lilting lullabies until their beloved mistress closes her eyes and drifts into sleep. Elsewhere in the forest, King Oberon is very much awake. Having argued with Titania, who is as stubborn in nature as the king himself, he concocts a plan to punish his fairy queen. High upon the branch of an old oak tree, Oberon meets with Puck, a clever but mischievous spirit, with tiny little horns poking out above his hair. He orders Puck to find a certain flower named Love in Idleness. A striking bloom with rounded petals, Oberon explains that the flower will turn from white to purple when struck with Cupid's arrow. The flower's nectar is filled with powerful magic. When dropped onto the eyelids of a sleeping person, the nectar will cause that person to wake and fall in love with the first living thing that they see. Oberon plans to play this trick on his wife, Queen Titania, having Puck slip the potion onto her sleeping eyes. After all, it would be rather embarrassing were the queen to fall in love with a tree or an animal. The mischievous spirit flies away, ready to do as ordered, while the king remains, resting on the branch of the old oak tree. And it's from here that he observes the two Athenians wandering along the forest floor. Not Lysander and Hermia, the eloping lovers, but Helena and Demetrius. The king watches, captivated, as the lady professes her love for Demetrius, only to be rebuked rather cruelly and left to wander alone. Seeing the lady's distress, the ever-romantic fairy king hatches a new plan. When Puck returns, potion in hand, Oberon instructs him to use it upon the eyelids of the young Athenian man, hoping to fulfill the Lady Helena's dreams. The only problem is that Puck hasn't actually seen the young Athenian in question, nor does he know of the other couple hidden in the forest, who, at this very moment, have paused to take a nap. And so, when the spirit catches sight of Lysander, fast asleep upon the forest floor, he naturally assumes that this is the man he seeks. Dipping down beneath the boughs of a maple tree, Puck flies gracefully towards him, a trail of gold dust in his wake, only to appear human-sized beside the sleeping Lysander with the lovely purple flower held in his hand. With his lips curled into a smile, the impish spirit holds the bloom above Lysander's face, allowing a single drop to fall onto his right eyelid, then his left. 
The drops shimmer on his skin for just a moment before vanishing from sight. Puck vanishes too, believing his mission to be a success, without any knowledge of the impending amusement that will result from his mistake. Because at this moment, the Lady Helena is trudging towards them, having been abandoned by Demetrius. And still distressed, her vision blurred by tears, she fails to notice Lysander's sleeping body, tripping over his legs and falling onto the forest floor. The Athenian wakes to see Helena on the ground beside him and instantly falls in love, thanks to the magic of the nectar. All thoughts of Hermia fall from his mind as he loudly professes Helena now to be his one true love. What a twisting tale this is, perhaps for Helena more than anyone. Knowing little of the magic of fairies and having seen the love between Lysander and Hermia, she concludes that she must be the victim of a cruel joke. Lysander must be mocking her, she thinks, and pretending to be in love with her. This only adds to her upset, and she storms off into the forest, cursing Lysander's name. Now, desperately in love, he follows after her, leaving Hermia to sleep alone. Hermia continues to sleep, eventually waking to find Lysander gone. What else is she to do then, but begin searching the beautiful ethereal forest for her future husband. Some distance away from where the Athenians each wander, yet more magic and mischief is afoot. In a forest clearing, bathed in sunlight, a group of workmen are rehearsing a play to be performed at the royal wedding. Little do they know that the fairy queen, Titania, sleeps only meters away, raised high up on her woodland bed. Or that Puck is just now returning from his mission, having slipped the potion onto the queen's sleepy eyelids. Stumbling across these amateur dramatics, Puck finds a seat on the cushioned leaf of a maple tree, a secret audience of one. Then, leaning forward, he rests his head upon his hands, ready to take in the show. The play in question is a tragedy, though truly the rehearsals are somewhat comedic. For amongst the workmen is a fellow named Nick Bottom, a rather over-enthusiastic character, who declares himself such a fine actor that he ought to play every part. Watching on, Puck is amused by this rather arrogant and silly character, and being the mischievous creature that he is, decides to teach this man a lesson. So, when Bottom stands apart from the group, repeating his lines before his entrance onto the stage, the naughty sprite seizes his opportunity. Casting a spell under his breath, Puck's words trigger a strange and wonderful transition. 
the man's face begins to change. His features become more animal than human, as his face is gradually covered by silky, silvery fur. His human ears disappear from sight, only to be replaced by long, pointed ears that sit on top of his head. Though his body and clothes remain as they were, the head of Nick Bottom is now that of a donkey, save for his bright hazel eyes. To the man himself, though, nothing has changed. So when he swaggers back to the group, eager to perform his lines, he is naturally confused by his friend's strong reactions. They gasp and stare at the sight of his face, and then, thinking themselves cursed, they promptly flee the scene. The impish Puck also exits, chuckling at his handiwork as he flies away to find his king. Nick Bottom, on the other hand, is determined to stay cheerful. Assuming his friends to be joking, he waits for their return in the sun-filled clearing, singing to himself a most cheerful tune. Meanwhile, the gorgeous fairy queen stirs nearby, woken by the sound of this very song. The potion once again takes immediate effect, and Titania declares this voice to be the most heavenly one she has ever heard. Turning over on her flowery mattress, she gazes down upon Nick Bottom, considering him to be the most beautiful, wise, and fascinating mortal that she has ever seen. And she declares this proudly, proclaiming her great love for him and ordering her servants to dote on him as she does. Bottom's eyes are soon opened to the world of woodland magic, previously invisible to him. The sprites and spirits, elves and fairies. The fairies fly about him, dancing through the air, singing their enchanting bird-like song. For the first time in his life, Nick Bottom is speechless. Astonished by what he sees, he takes Titania's outstretched hand in an almost trance-like state. She leads him to a tree at the edge of the clearing, where a bundle of cushions rests upon the ground. Ruby red velvet with a trimming of gold tassels they sit against the trunk of a massive maple tree, the same tree from which Puck cast his spell. Here, upon a throne of cushions, sits Nick Bottom, a fairy queen beside him, gazing adoringly into his eyes. As requested by their mistress, Titania's servants bring plates of food and drink, there are purple grapes that sparkle like jewels, soft orange apricots, and the sweetest, plumpest figs. Split open, they reveal their ruby-red insides, packed with golden seeds. 
And there's wine, too. A rich, red wine. Served to the couple in goblets of silver. In all his life, Nick Bottom has never enjoyed such a banquet or been in the presence of such wonderful company. He savours every mouthful and moment. Finding his voice, Bottom becomes most comfortable in his new surroundings. And right beside him, the Queen hangs on his every word as they talk, eat, and gaze into one another's eyes, all to a soundtrack of fairy song. Though it may be the result of Oberon's trick, it's hard to imagine a happier or more harmonious outcome. Despite their great differences, it's clear to all that the pair are blissfully content. Sadly, the same cannot be said of the Athenian couples, whose situation has only worsened. For Puck has returned to the king, and he, observing the couples to be more distressed than they were before, quickly realizes that a mistake has been made. He has placed the potion in the wrong man's eyes, breaking the love match between Hermia and Lysander. Lysander now dotes on Helena, whilst the man she loves, Demetrius, continues to reject her. Oberon decides that it is time to intervene, to carry out the plan that was originally in place. Scanning his realm in search of Demetrius, he soon discovers the man, dozing upon a patch of dry grass. As he sleeps, the king appears beside him, kneeling down, with sparkling eyes and skin. Puck does the same, handing over the precious flower and watching as the potion is placed upon the eyelids of the sleeping man. Just as before, it glimmers golden for a moment and then disappears into the man's closed eyelids. Hearing Helena's approach as planned, the pair promptly vanish, certain of the potion's good effects. Oberon in particular is keen to see his queen and to observe the effects of the potion upon her. He is somewhat surprised when he does find her, still seated below the tree. Of all that he expected, it was not this, his lovely wife sleeping so happily beside this strange and unusual creature. Queen Titania is more beautiful than ever in her love-struck state, next to this man, his head that of a donkey. Yet Oberon's own reaction surprises him also. Gone is the upset previously between them, along with any thought 
to delight in her situation. Instead, he only longs to lie beside his queen, to have her look upon him with affection in her eyes. And so, Oberon motions towards the base of the tree, kneeling beside his queen with the purple bloom in hand. He sniffs at its petals, drinking in the sweet fragrance of love, before placing a drop upon each of Titania's eyelids. Then, setting the flower down, he gently takes her face in his hands and whispers sweet adorations. Until she wakes and gazes into his eyes, falling in love with her king all over again. Once more, all is right between the fairy king and queen, and harmony reigns within the forest kingdom. It's a peace felt throughout the woodland by all living creatures. Even the trees seem to exhale in relief, lowering their branches ever so slightly and relaxing their leaves. And the fairies rejoice as Oberon and Titania waltz through the air, a trail of gold dust falling from their feet. Then they disappear hand in hand, leaving the dust to settle upon the ground, a carpet of fallen stars. Of course, for Puck, his work is not yet done. A little more magic is needed for this story to gain its true and happy ending, for peace to be had by the mortals as it is by the fairies. Because at present, the foursome have found each other within the woodland, and confusion abounds. Thanks to the efforts of the fairy king, Demetrius now returns Helena's affection. Having seen her first upon waking, he proclaims that he loves her now more than anyone in the world. In this, then, at least, the fairy's magic has been successfully used. Only Lysander, too, remains in love with Helena, whilst Hermia now is loved by none. This will be the case until the flower's magic is undone. The friends argue. Lysander with Demetrius and Hermia with Helena until each wanders off in their own direction. Seeing this, Puck goes to work, filling the air with a golden and glittering mist that mystifies the human senses. The air becomes sweet and luscious, like the lovely cream roses on Titania's dress and the tables of the guests at the palace wedding. To add to this enchantment, the impish Puck 
moves from place to place, mimicking the voices of each Athenian until they follow his words and are lulled to sleep in separate places in the forest. Then, bending down beside the sleeping Lysander, he takes out the flower for the final time. Placing droplets of its juice upon the man's sleeping eyelids, he removes Lysander from the spell, leaving only his pure and natural love for Hermia. From here, Puck flies back to the woodland clearing where a peaceful Nick Bottom sleeps alone beneath the tree. And whispering a spell under his breath, he returns the man to his former human self. Then, with a snap of his fingers, he transports Nick Bottom to a bed of grass near the palace gates. There, Bottom wakes beneath the glow of morning sunshine, thinking himself to have had a most strange and wonderful dream. And off he goes, towards the palace and his fellow actors, eager to perform at the wedding later. Elsewhere, at the edge of the forest, within a meadow of violet bluebells, the four Athenians also stir. Lysander lies beside Hermia, while Demetrius lies beside Helena. None knows the magic that has befallen them, or the amount of time lost within the woodland, whether it be minutes, hours, or even days. Like Nick Bottom, they can only recall a most strange and wonderful dream. The only thing that is clear on this lovely summer's morning is that their former problems are no more. None amongst them are lovelorn or unhappy. Each of the couples is as content as anyone could hope to be. And so they stroll back towards the palace, where it soon transpires that little time has passed since their many dreamlike wanderings. Duke Theseus is as we left him, seated upon the terrace. Only now his soon-to-be wife, Queen Hippolyta, sits beside him, enjoying the sounds of that marvellous string quartet. Both appear calm and absorbed in the music, though they're happily surprised by the sight of the returning subjects. Even more so to see Demetrius holding the hand of the Lady Helena, an expression of devotion upon his face. Hermia's father sees this too and comes to join the group now forming on the terrace, protesting still that his daughter must marry Demetrius. Luckily for all, the Duke disagrees. Indeed, he is as much a romantic as King Oberon in the forest, especially now on the morning of his wedding day with his beautiful fiancée seated beside him. 
He might not understand quite how Demetrius' feelings have shifted so swiftly without reason. But then again, reason and love so rarely go together, as we very well know, having witnessed the events in the woodland. What's obvious to the Duke is the warmth and affection that exists between Helena and Demetrius, Hermia and Lysander. And so, archaic laws are cast aside, and the couples are invited to marry at the royal wedding, alongside Theseus and Hippolyta. And so, they do, marrying upon the palace lawn in the most grand and beautiful ceremony, watched over by family, friends, and Athenian high society. Each of the ladies holds bouquets of roses, picked fresh from the gardens in shades of red and cream. They're everywhere, these flowers, sweet and luxurious, with petals like velvet, twisted around the white wooden arches above where the couples recite their vows, in vases beside chairs where guests watch from the lawn, and on tables too, where all will soon retire, enjoying a banquet like no other, to the sound of stringed instruments. Later, they'll turn and watch the play on the palace terrace, a tragedy performed by Nick Bottom and his fellow amateur actors. Indeed, it will be a performance so awful and so poorly acted that it will lighten the hearts of all who see it. From beginning to end, the play will be punctuated with laughter and smiles. And at its conclusion, the applause of the amused audience will echo throughout the grounds. Then, at long last, with the sky darkened, the wedding shall end, and all shall retire. And step by step, the three happy couples will walk below the stars, husbands and wives now, with hands held tightly. Not just stars, but fairies too. Oberon and Titania, Puck, and many thousands more. They'll fly above, glowing like fireflies, blessing those below with fortune and grace, and wishing upon all a deep and dreamy slumber. <laughs>